If you were to take the top 20 most rich oil companies on the planet today, that's Saudi Aramco, Exxon, right? All these baddies. And to buy them outright from the markets today, that's four and a half trillion dollars. The fiduciaries have what? 30 to 50 trillion. Yes, you could buy Saudi Aramco and the 19 more rich, or less of the 19 others on that list of 20 for four and a half trillion dollars. That's the money that pensions have. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Ian Edwards. Ian is the founder of the project Bank of Nature, and he joined me to discuss how we can finance the future with pensions. He explains the fiduciary duty that is meant to underlie pension plans, and how that has gradually been eroded with neoliberal ideology, and how if we can bring back that implication of fiduciary duty, that it is a long-term view that fiduciaries are meant to be protecting the assets of the beneficiaries, i.e. pensioners, we can use that to finance climate resilience, climate adaptation, and a better future for all. He explains that there is 30 to $50 trillion of government pension plans in the world that we could leverage to put to work in the fight against the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, the energy crisis, the water crisis. He says that we need to think about this money as stewardship money. And it is so fascinating, everything that he says. He explains that a fiduciary-grade investment should be a minimum financial return of 6 to 8%, with maximum social and environmental returns, that all pensions should be investing in that which benefits their beneficiaries well into the future. He tells us about the bill that's before the Massachusetts Senate to put this implication into law, and then reveals the fascinating ways that this money could be leveraged, including, at the end, explaining how we could use it to buy fossil fuel companies in order to force the transition. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques, and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Ian, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I am so pleased to be here. Thank you. So my first question for you is, why is the world in crisis and what can we do about it? Uh, the world is in crisis, I think, because we have the wrong people in charge. Um, a lot of my work has been to try and think about systems in place, why they don't work, and what else might be done. So if you're looking for government and corporates to lead the climate change uh, crusade, I think you're going to be disappointed. So I've been looking at who else might, might want to do that. 
Oh, excellent. That leads into the what are we going to do about it by the question. <laughs> Well, you know, I think that what I'm what I'm looking at are two huge Venn diagrams in in the, in the sky, and you have everything that climate needs, and then who's tasked with fixing climate. And so, in the Bank of Nature project, which is um, the program that I run through my five hundred one c three here on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, um, we take a look at where the money is to pay for climate security that isn't there now. So, if you're worried about it all being about just all about, about money. I think your, 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 your worry is, is justified, but that's exactly what's, what's at play here. We need to pay for climate security with the right money designed to do that. This is now obviously the big uh, conversation in politics right now. You know, we just, uh, at COP27, there was the loss and damages. That, that was sort of one of the main points on the agenda. And that was fraught at Bonn as well recently. They almost the conference almost didn't start because they were kind of going round and round and round about this climate finance stuff. And then Macron has just had his special climate finance conference in Paris. Um, so yeah, there does seem to be this question of like, yeah, but how are we going to pay for it all? And then a lot of other people being like, well, we have the money though. <laughs> so like, what is the issue? Because we know that we have the resources. So why aren't they being deployed correctly? Uh, well, uh, I think. Let me start by saying there are multiple kinds of money. You know, mm -hmm. Each piece of money, uh, we're talking about, uh, say, taxation or philanthropy or lending, three different types right there. They all have different social decision-making power. The one that we don't talk about is fiduciary money. And fiduciary money starts to get eyes glazed over. People don't know what fiduciary <laughs> duty is. And, you know, it's having its moment here in the U.S. with a partisan debate about public pensions, which is my space, and also what fiduciary uh, duty is relative to investments in ESG or divestment. Uh, so, you know, back in this 1911, Massachusetts was the first U.S. state to create a state-level pension plan. And so they started collecting money as a public good to support older Americans in their, in their uh, golden years, that was good for workers, job creation, uh, the society and economy. So it started as a public good. And then somewhere around the 50s, it became a kind of a financial uh, bank kind of idea. And then in the 70s, it sort of went all through the speculative markets and became this big amount of money going through Wall Street type markets. So if you're asking about what the problem is, it's about securitization, you know, if you want to get nerdy about it, it's about neoliberal securitization, the idea that the market will create uh, um, these solutions. And I, I think the fiduciary money, which is public pensions, endowments, other pension plans uh, pegged to the future and run by a fiduciary, have a unique scale, duty, and mission to lead on climate, but they don't. Well, okay, so, what is a fiduciary? Sorry. Yes. So a fiduciary duty is this relic of, you know, a thousand years old, maybe even biblical, this idea that one person is given a legal ob obligation to look after the interests of another. So it's about if you're a trustee, say if you have a family trust and somebody is given the job of running the money on your behalf, that is a fiduciary agreement. If you have a, mm. a broker, an agent broker running money for you, that's a, that's a fiduciary uh, relationship. If you hold a pension, go ahead. 
Okay, not just I suppose I might be running, uh, getting ahead of myself here, but I suppose my immediate question then is like, so if the fiduciary, the fiduciary duty is like looking after some, it's something for someone else's best interests, how do we define those interests? Because at the moment, the best interest is like capitalism, like making more money from Correct. capital. So is, is part of your plan to like redefine it around, you know, the unborn and the more than human world? And yeah, talk to me about it. Sure. So, you know, I, the idea of fiduciary duty is a tough one because people glaze over. They, they think it's a kind of a, a rarefied idea. And I actually think it's a model for 21st century citizenship. But let's, let's start with what it is in America and let's zero in on public pensions. Because that is, there are a thousand kinds of species of fiduciary. And the one I'm looking at are the people who are running a billion and trillion dollar pension plans, right? These are people that are looking after money to deliver a pension promise 75 years in, in advance into the future. So if there, there's no better example of long-termism than a public pension, right? So you're a 25 year old school teacher You've taken a job with the government. You're getting a government pension as part of your compensation. That is a contract to deliver something 75 years out. You know, if you more of us are going to be living to 100. That 25-year-old school teacher today will be collecting uh, benefits, checks, retirement uh, in 2098, 22nd century. So if we're looking at ways of looking at the future relevant to today's, today's decisions, we have to look at fiduciaries because they are the best social contract with other people to deliver something in the future. And the scale of money is what's really at play here. In America, there's 26 million civil, uh, civil servants, right? People who work for government. Their combined reti retirement holdings are $5 trillion. So there's a bunch of people in, in the States looking after $5 trillion worth of money. And it is moving in a securitized way, which is that neoliberal idea that we need to create growth. And the partisan debate in the U.S. is about the sole purpose of a public pension is to create growth. So uh, the law doesn't say that. Hmm. And what is best understood about fiduciary duty is it is a duty to follow instructions. It's not a. It's, it's a duty to produce a dignified future for a particular person. And in the U.S., it has $5 trillion backing that promise. So how and how, why and for whom that $5 trillion in the U.S., and the number globally is like 30 to 50 trillion, how that money moves has consequence for all of us because $5 trillion is pretty much the biggest thing there is. And 30 to $50 trillion globally is about as close as we get to the scale of climate and paying for climate. So the question is mm -hmm. why is that money not being used to do what it's supposed to do, right? And we can get into that, but you know, the idea is that we need to think about money differently and use it as designed. Okay. I think we're gonna have to break down what a pension is. <laughs> for, sure. Uh, for me, um, and if my, if my mother is listening, which she probably is, she might be thrilled by this episode because she's panicked uh, because I don't have a pension. Because I'm like, no. Susan, come on, the economic system won't exist by the time I retire. Like, you know, it's, it's just not going to be a thing. 
Um, so yes, how does the pension work? So if there's this, um, let, let's talk about the global number. So if there's 30 to $50 trillion in the world of people's pensions. Right. right? Managed, managed by people who are supposed to deliver a future for those people. Yes. Okay. Managed by fiduciaries. And people are paying into their pension with the understanding that money will also be paid in by their organization, by the government, Correct. blah, blah, blah. So there'll be a chunk when they retire. Now, how do we redirect that in as climate finance? Is it the money that they are paying into it then goes into a project and then they make returns on it? Like, break that down for me. Sure. So uh, a pension plan, and let's just stick with civil servants, people who work in the public sector, because that's the easiest one to understand. So you take a government job, part of your compensation is you get a pension. And that when you turn 65 or whatever the retirement age is, you start to collect a check. So for your career, you've paid money in. Perhaps your employer has also paid money in. And there's a chunk of money that gets paid back to you in your retirement. And it's for as long as you live. So from 65 to say 100, you get a check monthly, usually from a pension plan. A pension plan is a, is a financial actuarial pool, right? This is, a, this, this is why it gets tough because people don't understand, it's un understandable. They don't understand these, these terms. But a pension plan is, is a pool of money that's supposed to basically live forever, at least for as long as the youngest eligible beneficiary is able to collect. So in my math, that's at least 75 years into the future. Every year they're given a number. We call it a bogey at Bank of Nature. We call it like it's, it's either 6% or 7% or 8%. This is some sort of actuarial math that comes from a third party usually. It says you must make this much money this year in order to pay all your benefits and keep living forever. So 6% so, of what's in the pot. Yes. So the pension has to put money to work and make at least 6%. So that's a sufficiency number, right? They need to reach that number in order to meet their goals, to deliver their benefits for their beneficiaries for forever. What's happened in the last 50 years or so is this idea of pension plans speculating on Wall Street and putting money into things like oil and gas or toxic industries or some other way of making money now that takes away the benefits from the future. So the divestment you know, uh, movement is saying you pension plan must divest your, your, your oil and gas uh, assets in order to meet your fiduciary duty. We're coming from the other direction. We're taking a look at the law and we're, we're making it so that a fiduciary must defend any investment as fiduciary. One that meets those minimum returns, that six or seven or 8%, whatever the actuary says per year, and also maximizes the quality of life when that person is supposed to retire. So for instance, so we've put together in Massachusetts, a Senate bill, I just, I just presented it a couple of weeks ago. And the idea is to go into the law and change it and make it explicit so that the fiduciaries have better instructions. If fiduciary duty is the duty to follow instructions, what are the instructions we're giving the fiduciaries to follow? And in Massachusetts and elsewhere, I'm sure, it's, it's 
it's deficient in language. And it needs explicit language, like this duty of care, this duty of loyalty. These are precepts that is implied in best fiduciary practice. And it should be practiced, but it is not explicit in the law. So I'm trying to make explicit in law what is implied in best practice. And one of those big ideas is this duty of impartiality, which is unique to pensions, right? You have an intergenerational loyalty. You have multiple diverse uh, beneficiaries, including that 25-year-old school teacher and the 100-year-old retiree. They have different expectations of fiduciary duty. Somebody who's 25 wants to make sure they have a future. Somebody who's 100 doesn't care, right? So it is about putting into law this idea that they have a more robust responsibility that is just not financial excellence. You can't go off and get growth. That's not the foundations of a pension, especially a public pension, as a public good. It is about uh, quality, curating, stewarding a future for these people. And the reason why I get jazzed about this is because the money, the scale of money, 30 to $50 trillion globally, if we started to move that money for just the beneficiaries, we fix it for everyone. Because that okay. is a lot of money to move. Is one quick question. That 30 sure. to 50 trillion, is that just of um, the civil service pensions around the world? Yeah. Oh. So, yeah. So the OECD, you know, has a regular pension report and there's something called a defined benefits plan, which is the traditional plan that has a fiduciary in charge. And more recently, they've had self-directed plans and what they call defined contribution plans, which put the risk on the employer to employee to uh, create their own retirement plan. So okay. what we're looking at is the old fashioned ones that remember from, you know, back in the day when a government job got you a pension and you were secure in your future. Okay. Wow. So that's not even just all the pensions in the world. That's just like those particular ones. All right. Okay. And then also, how do you get your six or 8% return if you're not going for growth? Well, you would, you still have to get your 6%, which means you have to you have to invest to meet a 6%, which means that you need to put that money to work. What it doesn't mean is you have to go for a windfall on Wall Street. It doesn't mean you have mm -hmm. to go for multiples like a VC. You don't have to work like a bank and get, you know, um, prime plus three, right? You're looking at a 6%, you know, return. And for me, that looks like a utility company. That looks like a commercial real estate company, something that returns something or uh, a regular return on investment, a regular um, rent check or some sort of dividend that is about the long-term steady cash flow from a direct investment. So, you know, as an example, let's say, you know, here in the States, they've, they've earmarked the uh, Gulf of Maine Energy Basin, which is this multinational, Canada and the US, multi-state, about, I think, six or eight states, all touching this Gulf of Maine area, which is from Massachusetts up to Newfoundland, say. And what they're trying to do is a multimodal kind of wind tidal kind of big energy project. This is exactly the kind of project that a pension plan alliance could come and bankroll right today, right? And then they can invest in that. They can, they can be the general partner. They can create an, uh, an alliance of, of pension plans and eventually get their six or 8%, whatever the, you know, the annuity is from that particular investment. 
right? That's a 6%, you know, that's a different kind of business model. It's a different kind of pitch to an investor. It's a different kind of business plan, you know, and it's always bothered me that in a neoliberal securitized world, we have to come up with a great business plan before we can have a good climate plan. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So then how does this work? for the like global climate finance given the global south is calling for you know like debt cancellation and they're calling for um grants to be given rather than loans because obviously europe in particular is really big on trying to finance um climate resilience and climate adaptation through you know loans from the private market which is disastrous so where does that fit into this picture sure so I come at this and say, I think I started by saying that government and industry are not designed to be the climate heroes that we need. Mm. Uh, and I, 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 look at, I look at the macro level and I see that climate management all around the world is overly complex, right? You have 200 nation states, each with their own agenda. You have 300 million businesses, you know, each looking for growth. And from all of that, you're supposed to come up with a unified plan to save the climate. And, you know, COP27, COP37, you know, these are, these are organizations that are meant to show that the world is working towards a climate plan, but it, but doesn't. And I, and so I actually think the government and industry are tapped out, that they are beyond their ability to actually create a solution. If we were to take them out of the equation, you have to think about who else might be stepping up. And when I talk about these fiduciaries, these are people in charge of this trillions of dollars. There are far fewer of them. They have a specific scope of work and a specific scope of obligation, and they have more money than anything else. So if we were to take the complexity out of it and give the job to one person or a group of one type of person, fiduciary, they would have to put their uh, work money to work differently. They would have to say, uh, I need to meet 6% and I need to be able to secure a future for my beneficiary. That is a much simpler combination of ideas than it is about climate policy and climate financing grants and, you know, global south and global north and, you know, the trade-offs, all these things are so complicated. That's government policy looking at busy work to try and look like they're doing something, but are trying in vain. I suppose my only like, and we'll, we'll continue to unpack it, but at this stage, the, like, the, the nervousness I have is, is it still sounds quite a lot like kind of fitting in with the old paradigm of, of capitalism um, rather than us sort of, you know, redistributing wealth in the way that it should be because we have the resources that we need. We have the technology that we need. We have, we have everything that we need. There is just like a resource, essentially a resource grabbing going on all of the time. And so... Whilst I really like the idea of how that would work within a, a nation state, you know, using that money to invest on like climate resilience within one's own borders. Um, I guess I'm concerned if that would kind of like um, open up an excuse or a justification for global north countries to not provide the financing, the no strings attached financing that nations in the global south need in order to adapt quickly, urgently um, in the face of the climate crisis. Well, the thing about pension fiduciaries is that they're extranational, that they can, they can invest anywhere as long as they are doing the work of a fiduciary, meeting their minimum returns and maximizing social and environmental benefits in the future. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, with, with tens of trillions of dollars managed by this, this idea of fiduciary duty, this, this mission and the duty and the enormous financial scale, you can take a look at global north and global south uh, challenges differently because that money is not beholden to climate policy. It's not beholden to corporate sustainability. It's not about taking money away from growth-centric government and industry. It's about creating a a business opportunity for people who only need to make 6% for their beneficiaries forever. So I think that you would look at if we were able to get this, and again, you know, we're, we're, we're a ways away from doing this because of course the law is not helpful and best practice is non-fiduciary, frankly. And so we need to switch out a lot of bad behaviors towards something that's more stewardship focused. And stewardship for me is, is the world. And, you know, you could, you know, part of my goal is for people to say, what does a seven continent synchronous climate adaptation climate remedy look like, you know, something that goes around the world all the time, coordinated. That's a fiduciary, you know, question. That's somebody, that's somebody who can pull together a trillion dollars and put it to work that way, as opposed to piecemeal around the planet. Because, you know, the idea of being climate resilient is a first world Western civilization kind of idea, right? You can choose to be environmental. You can do meatless Mondays. You can drive a EV. You can, you know, vote I green. That's climate resilience. Well, that's but not, I mean, that's not, the, that's not the climate adaptation that, you know, the countries in the global side, the nations like Pakistan are calling for. Right. Because they don't have their own economic abilities to do this. It's, it's, they're living below poverty lines. They're living at poverty lines. They have a choice to live their lives or be climate friendly. And, and I think that when, you, when you're talking about global south and global north, you're talking about the distribution of money and governments and corporations aren't going to do it. I don't think that they have the scale to do it and I don't think they have the will to do it. But if you look at a fiduciary who's not doing his job at the moment or her job at the moment and uh, could be doing it differently. How would that money be redeployed? And so it really is about understanding what is the role of money in the markets and how should it move differently? And I'm saying that fiduciary money is invisible in the global economy. And if we were to take that money and put it properly to use, it would be extra, extra national and it would be at the scale we need to develop, develop climate strategies all over the planet. At least that's what I, I just that's to- the theory anyway. Sure, sure, sure. And like, let's keep going about that theory. But there's one thing I want to just pull you up on. Um, the You said that people in the global south have the choice to either live their lives or be climate friendly. That's just not true. They have much lower em- emissions per capita than that developed is true. nations. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. So when we talk about climate resilience and climate adaptation, it's about sort of, you know, rushing through an energy transition, helping them bypass fossil fuels, also getting them off of low value added manufacturing and um, getting them yeah, different ways to engage in the global market that isn't just like providing the West with its, you know, sort of um, filling its rapacious need for stuff. Right. Understandable. And, you know, the global South needs stuff just like the global North. So how do we, how do we change the system? And really, I guess what we're talking about is we have this neoliberal securitization economy, right? Where we have corporatized government and dark money influence and market-based solutions, whatever that means. 
And the reason why we're stuck there is that there, I'm arguing, is that there's some wrong money in the wrong place. If we were to take 30 to $50 trillion globally and move it towards the way it is supposed to be designed, right? Which is to say, what is minimum and what is the benefit to our beneficiaries 75 years out, that money would move differently. It wouldn't be on Wall Street. It would be, you know, there's a difference between yeah. stewardship money and, uh, and speculative money. So, yeah. you know, if we're looking at a post-growth, post-neoliberal economy, we should look at fiduciaries for the scale that they have, right? You know, I've been taking to calling the neoliberal economy the last economy because if we don't figure it out, there is no next economy, mm. right? I think the fiduciaries have, have a really great model right? They, they worry about the care of their beneficiaries. They're loyal to their beneficiaries. They worry about all kinds of their beneficiaries. You know, I think they have the scale to negotiate something better. They have a duty to a safe future. These are the things that are missing in a neoliberal economy where we're trying to get quarterly reports and, you know, near-term gains. So if you take a look at fiduciary duty, not as a relic of the past, but as a model for the future, mm. You begin to see how we might treat everyone differently. And the reason this matters is because retirement assets are huge. And they have a specific duty that is not being met. They have a specific potential that is not being tapped. And they are not the climate heroes they ought to be because they're, uh, you know, subsumed by government and corporate, you know, priorities when they should have their own category. And like, how did that happen? How did this implied sure. fiduciary, you know, yeah, what went wrong? Right. So, you know, uh, a modern pension is probably 125, 150 years old, right? <clears throat> Back in New York City, they gave uh, uh, police officers a pension, you know, back in 1867 or 1870. Right. And that has evolved over time. And, you know, back in 1911, I was saying Massachusetts started the public pension in states. Right. So you started to collect money for use uh, in a retirement plan. So we were aggregating money, a lot of money for a lot of people <clears throat> to have their retirements. In the 50s, it got to be kind of, you know, corrupt. You know, companies would start to collect pensions, but then, you know, borrow against those pensions and they would go bankrupt and people would lose their pensions. So we got regulation. And then in the 70s, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, pensions had a very conservative legal list to follow, you know, so that they, you know, they could invest in bonds and they could invest in all kinds of very, very conservative uh, uh, instruments to make their minimums. In the 70s, you know, this is, uh, there was a report by the Ford Foundation uh, written by a, a couple of lawyers named Kerry and Bright, which changed the way endowments and pensions were able to invest. So there's something called a prudent person rule, right? And this is the idea that Wall Street, people who invest in Wall Street, you know, are reasonable people with reasonable skill doing reasonable things. So they gave that uh, market, which is designed for individuals to institutional investors like fiduciaries to go off and act like people. And all of a sudden you had tens of trillions of dollars trading through uh, the markets. You, you have Wolf of Wall Street and the bonfire of the vanities and you have the Reagan and Thatcher beginnings of neoliberalism in the 80s. And then you have, uh, you know, 
Citizens United, and you begin to see where all this money is being used. So we have this great way of collecting retirement money, but we don't have a great way of deploying. So we have half the job, right? And when you start to add up those nickels and dimes, you end up with $50 trillion in retirement assets globally. And that's in Japan, in Europe, here in the States, right? And it adds up. And what I'm saying is that we need to take that money and put it through its own dedicated channel. And if we did, we would change the way Wall Street government, all these, all these people who are rapacious capitalists uh, would operate. Their money just wouldn't be there. It would be moved to something that is about future-focused investments and you know, utilities and cash flow and the idea that, that you know, there should be a future that is defined and dignified and safe and worth retiring into because of the decisions they're making today. So yeah, I'm what, saying that they should be out of speculation. What is global GDP? Oh gosh, I don't have that number in my head. Um, yeah, I know, you know, sure. it, it's in the trillions. Uh, I, I have to look it up. Sorry. Global GDP. Cause I'm just wondering if, um, I know that the global uh, money supply is 86 trillion which is the money okay. that's in your pocket and then, you know, liquid assets. I'm just trying to figure out, like, what is the percentage of... Okay, so in 2021, it was 94 trillion. So taking out 30 to 50 trillion from this... Whoa. Yeah, light goes on, right? So, right. you know, it's not exactly apples with apples. But when you see yeah. that 30 to 50 trillion dollars is 20, 25, 50% of GDP or global money supply, right? This is the money that is guided by these duties of loyalty, care, and partiality, right? This is money that ought to be doing something different. And so if you'd hived off all of that money that's dedicated to a future, how would that work differently in the economy? It would, it, would, it would fundamentally change it. That's why I keep calling it the fiduciary economy. It's the fiduciary model is going to save us all. Why it's not oh so... God. Yeah. I mean, what would that do to Wall Street if like half of their oh, trading supply no. just suddenly disappeared? That's a different question. I have no idea and I would be glad to find out. <laughs> you know, it's... Yeah. So... So here's the question is, is to ask if that money were used as designed, how would the economy change? Okay. And, well, let's, let's split, let's, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So we would be investing in, uh, well, obviously investing in the energy transition, investing in clean water, hopefully investing. I don't know if you can invest in things that would like renationalize a bunch of stuff. Cause that would be super great. Um, but you wouldn't be investing in these like high profit making reactive, you know, like you wouldn't be investing in like your Sam, Sam Bankman Freed's and your, you know, crazy Silicon Valley nut jobs, no. would you? No, you would have to take a fiduciary point of view on the investment. And that's what's not happening with these, these boards these days. You know, they're, they're given a financial scheme by bank, uh, by asset managers like BlackRock, like Vanguard, right? that are rubber stamped and they go off, that money goes off. A fiduciary doing a fiduciary's job would have more discretion over what those investments are. So I would say all kinds of things would qualify as what we call a fiduciary grade investment. 
Fiduciary grade investment is a minimum return with maximum environmental and social benefits long-term. So it opens a whole lot of things. It's different than divestment. It's different than ESG, right? It's different because it is a direct, hopefully a direct investment uh, in something that has this kind of utility cash flow profile. Uh, we're not, and, and so part of the law that we've introduced here in Massachusetts, or it's a bill, it's not a law, it's fingers crossed. It starts a, a multi-year process. We're in a multi-year process to try and turn this into a law. It makes fiduciary grade. It introduces this idea of fiduciary grade. And it doesn't tell fiduciaries what to invest in. It tells them that they must defend it as meeting all their various duties, including this one about impartiality. So as an illustration, let's just say, um, we presented a paper in Scotland a couple of weeks ago, and it was about yeah. making good on BP's goal of being a net zero company. Yes, let's get to that. But Bernard Looney has said, we want to, we, we, we want to be an integrated energy company. We want to shift from this international oil company to an integrated energy company. And we want to be net zero by 2050, like everybody else. So take it for what it is. You can believe him or not believe him, but we took it as an opportunity to think about how we could use pension money to buy and retire a company like BP. And what we would do in that theoretical situation is buy him off the markets, become an oil company, uh -huh. but give him the space to transition. So we would do this just energy transition. We would get him out of quarterly reporting. We would get him out of this idea of speculative uh, share price trading, right? We would allow him the space to go off and become uh, an integrated oil company. However, that is met, right? You stop, you, you stop buying, you, he stops oil production, right? He stops drilling. He moves all of his money into R&D and green energies. And all of a sudden, over a period of, say, 20 years, he becomes a integrated oil company. That is something that a fiduciary can do, right? And I think it's a fiduciary choice to buy and retire toxic industries to replace them with better industries. And if we can, the business plan would be, say, uh, Bernard, we need 6% every year for the next 30 years for you to transition into energy, clean energy. Let's do that. Now, it's a fiduciary choice. That makes the future better for the beneficiaries because it's taking at least one oil company offline. And if you were to take the top 20 most rich oil companies on the planet today, that's Saudi Aramco, Exxon, right? All these baddies. And to buy them outright from the markets today, that's four and a half trillion dollars. The fiduciaries have what? 30 to 50 trillion. Yes. You could buy Saudi Aramco and the 19 more rich, or less of uh, the 19 others on that list of 20 for four and a half trillion dollars. That's the money that pensions have. Pensions could I mean, pull together. A bit. It's, it's, it's 10% of their holdings, right? It is it, an alliance of pension plans could come together and say, we are creating this stewardship fund. And we are going to go off and buy BP and, the, and 19 other oil companies, take them offline, give them the space to transition to a green energy economy. And without the pressures of Wall Street, without the pressures of, you know, all those brokers trying to make money off their share price trading. And 
give them give them a chance to do what they're doing because right now Bernard Looney can't do it. He's not going to meet his 2050 goals. Neither is anybody else because we're all stuck in this speculative short-term quarterly report of neoliberal securitization. That's a lot of words. Bullshit. <laughs> well, you, know, you and I agree with that, but the thing is, is we have to go back into the language that mm. people understand mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and tell them what they're going to do. And the other thing about divestment, yeah. And we can get into that if you want. But the other thing, thing about divestment is that it's telling me I can't, as a fiduciary, go and buy BP and transition it. But a fiduciary choice could make the case that it is better for their beneficiaries to do that. And that's an option this we don't have right now. Fascinating. Hang on. Okay. Okay. So just explain it to me how if, um, if I'm an alliance of pension plans and I buy, buy, buy BP and help give them that 20 year space to transition and where am i getting my six percent return from annually so that's people that are smarter than me these you know when we talk about a, um our project is called bank of nature and i and i have this idea that we will become general partners to these pension plans to create these package deals and you know invest like buy bp for 120 million dollar a billion sorry dollar uh private equity deal and create the business plan that would transition them. That's a, that's a, you know, those are MBAs that I don't, I don't have on staff right now, but there is going to be a way for us to think about this business differently. You know, what if we were to use the oil and gas that's already been extracted or uses that are benign for oil and gas, you know, fossil fuels, you know, medicines and medical technologies and those kinds of things. There are ways to recoup 6% from what's been pulled out of the ground that would meet those minimums for these pension plans. And I, th I don't know, th this is, this is the creative stuff that we get into once we have the opportunity to spend that money differently. Okay. Somebody's going to have to come up with a way to make 6%. That's the thing. Pension plans will. For sure. Sure. Why not? Like I mean, if, okay. I mean, for a business, for a pension plan to be able to invest in something like a energy transition, we have to figure out a business plan that makes them their minimum returns. So that means getting into, uh, you know, maybe we, maybe we're in the oil business for the first 10 years, but we, you know, transition, make it less. We replace those revenues with revenues from wind and tide and other kinds of benign energies that also make 6%. So it's just a way of figuring out the utility value from these investments to figure out a way that they keep the pension plan alive. Okay. And would, um, would a company like BP, um, would shareholders agree to be bought if the business well, plan was a transition? Again, you know, I think that if you were to go in as a, as a, an alliance of pension plans, you would make the pitch and there would certainly be people that wouldn't want to sell. But I mean, the thing is that these are, these are takeovers. I mean, Wall Street is full of, you know, mergers and acquisitions and leveraged buyouts and other kinds of deals that go on that, that, you know, again, smart MBAs would be able to figure out and make happen. I think the, the thing that's so interesting to me about this is like the creativity of it, the imagination of it, of like, cause right now you're seeing a lot of calls to divest, like stop funding fossil fuels. Um, but it's true that these companies, they are kind of stuck. Somebody explained this to me recently. Like the, <laughs> the problem isn't, you know, evil bosses making bad decisions for the planet. The problem is that if they just stop, they're going to have stranded assets 
for 40 years and then that's going to ripple through our financial system and that will affect people's pensions like everybody's kind of backed themselves into a corner essentially and so what I love about this is like while divestment is sort of like raising the alarm it's a kind of it's a form of activism it is saying you are going to have to do something soon you're you're going to have to change I love the idea that you could just buy BP and be like no more right <laughs> right right yeah, it, it, it is it is uh, sort of an aha moment when you figure out that the scale of pension plans to do more than they are and do it better is so potent. You know, we just don't think about that. Money is invisible in the global economy. It's been used by, you know, corporates and, and governments when it should be used for stewardship. And I think that that's, that's what I hope people will take away is that there is money designed for the future. There is There is a social contract that can be argued in court that says we owe you a promise. And if you don't think we're delivering you a promise, then you can sue. And that's what the law says. That's what the bill says in Massachusetts. That's what I'm hoping people will take away when, when we look at who to be yelling at for lack of action on climate. You know, I actually think that government, uh, you know, politicals and, and politicians and CEOs, part of their job is to take the heat from, from activists so that they can placate them and look like they're doing something, but don't really do anything. I think if we change that same focus to the few people that run trillions of dollars in the global economy who are vulnerable to those kinds of attacks, that we would see a different action. You know, it would just change things. And, you know, I don't know. I don't think the fiduciaries think they're doing a bad job. Let's, let's put that out there. I think that they have a sober, solemn, professional job. But what they've inherited over the last 50 to 70 years is a way of doing business that is contrary to what they're designed to do. And, you know, I think they get away with it because fiduciary duty is such a boring topic. You know, people get, people get glossy-eyed when they think about what a fiduciary duty, nobody wants to think about the retirement when they're 25. Nobody, nobody wants to think about end of life stuff. But the truth is, is there's a piece of money out there, probably the biggest that we have that could make that future really, really bright. Presently, it's being used to make it really, really dim. This is good stuff. I mean, I'm pretty <laughs> about it, don't get me wrong, but it's really good stuff. Tell me quickly, before I let you go, tell me about this Senate bill. Sure. So it's uh, Senate Bill 1644, just introduced in Massachusetts. It's called an act relevant to pensions, fiduciary standards, and sustainable investment. So what you learn first in lobbying is that they give you your bills really boring names. Mm -hmm. But it is as an attempt to uh, uh, restate fiduciary duty in Massachusetts law uh, in a way that makes the law sync better with best practice and vice versa. So for instance, in the language of fiduciary standards in Massachusetts, they don't actually have a definition for fiduciary duty. So I've added one. They don't <laughs> talk about the precepts of duty and loyalty and impartiality, which are so important to the execution of fiduciary duty. So I added them. Uh, I talk about the purpose of a pension plan, not for growth, but as delivering a dignified future. So that it's a different priority. You know, they have, they called it the Massachusetts liability fund. Well, it's a Massachusetts promise fund, right? It's got a, it's got a future that is, 
I mean, nobody wants to think about their future wading through, uh, you know, sea level rise. They want to think about gulping in Boca, right? They don't discount their future. So this is the idea is that, you know, you get a plan, you get the law that says that this is what a pension plan is supposed to do. Let's do it. And then you open up all kinds of opportunities to think about what a fiduciary might invest in. So the reason I, I get excited by this bill is that it takes what I see as a deficiency in practice, makes it, uh, ref, you know, repairs that and makes it so that a fiduciary has to see the writing on the wall and see, oh, this is coming. I need to get better. I need to be, I need to be fiduciary, right? Am I doing things that are non-fiduciary? Should I be doing something different? And this is the writing on the wall for all of the other fiduciaries. You know, I think that what we're facing in terms of making this case is that ubiquitous fiduciary best practice is actually non-fiduciary. And that's everywhere. You know, everybody's chasing financial excellence when they should be chasing quality and quantity. So that's, that's, the, that's, that's the model that we're trying to get in Massachusetts is to try and you know, create an environment where we have a conversation about fiduciary duty as a model for the future as a way to be citizens in the 21st and now 22nd century and get to a place where we actually spend money differently that changes the way we all live in the future, right? Because if you fix the future for 26 million civil servants, you're moving enough money to fix the, fix the future for 8 billion people. Oh, That's just the truth. Why? <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. and also... And also yeah. quickly, how did BP take it when you presented your report? Well, I mean, yeah, we're, we're, we're underlings. We don't, we don't get the attention of Bernard Looney. I don't know. He's not reached out. And this is a hypothetical, you know, Bank of Nature, the project we're working with is a, you know, a design and, and imagination initiative. So, you know, we have free, free reign to go after everybody. Um, no one has come to us, unfortunately, uh, about BP, but I mean, that's, you know, people are asking us how we're going to do this. We need to create the case studies to do that. You know, BP is one, Gulf of Maine is another, right? Um, so I would, I would happily take a call from Bernard Looney. Let's just put it that way. Bernard, if you're listening, pick up the phone. Yeah. <laughs> All right, brilliant. Oh, Ian, you've given me so much to think about. My final question for you is, mm -hmm. who would you like to platform? This, so I'm interested in the... Long-termism is a thing that I, that I have pointed at in all my career. I don't know why we don't think long-term. So deep time, geologic time, those kinds of things are important to me. So uh, in, my, in my earlier work with, the, with my nonprofit, I had a, a, an author by the name of Marsha Bjornerud, who is a professor of geosciences at Wisconsin University, Lawrence. And uh, she's turned out to be a great supporter of mine. And she has a beautiful book called Timefulness, which I would encourage everyone to look at. It's, it really, it, it uh, works on my ideas of transdisciplinary art and science working for climate change ideas. And, you know, I, it's a great book and she's a great lady and she's been very supportive of us. And I hope everybody buys her book. Brilliant. Ian, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate it. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. 
As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together. 